everybody. Welcome to the gorgeous Church of All Nations. My name is Chris Gordon. I look after some of the events and programming that happens at Readings. On behalf of Readings and indeed on behalf of Black Ink, welcome to tonight. We are so, so lucky to be in the very capable and assuring hands of Maxine McHugh. We know her as an author and perhaps as an Honourable Enterprise Professor at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. Her background, of course, traverses both journalism and politics. For many, many years, she was a familiar face on the ABC and was an anchor of many prestigious programs. Uh, she will, in fact, be playing that type of role for us tonight. And she will be talking with Rebecca Huntley, who is one of Australia's leading social researchers. She was the director from 2006 to 2015 of the Mind and Mood Food Report, Australia's longest running social trends report. Uh, let's make her, oh, this is also interesting. She presents the History Listen on ABC Radio National. Together, I think all of us can make these two extraordinary women feel very, very welcome. It's, it's terrific to be here tonight, and I haven't got a copy of it, to be talking about Rebecca's new uh, quarterly essay, which is called Australia Fair, and how timely this is, because we're in the run-up to an election where the issue of fairness and what both major parties mean by that is going to be absolutely uh, at the centre. I mean, I, I'm delighted. Rebecca and I have known each other a long time, um, uh, from my Sydney days, and we've had um, many a uh, late-night conversation mm -hmm. about, uh, about politics and about the nature of uh, democracy and all the rest of it. But I, I also know that Rebecca is here because she brings a lifetime of professional experience um, as, I think, one of the country's most preeminent social researchers. I always took a lot of notice of Rebecca's data uh, as a journalist, and particularly of the judgments she makes based on that data. But I have to say, Rebecca, it was a bit of a, um, I thought, interesting that you uh, made the revelation in the early part of your essay that your husband describes you as someone who's an expert in the opinions of people who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so that must be an interesting conversation in, in, in her household. Well, that's because, you know, he's an engineer, so he's used to building things and that's his right. whole life is... That's right. Is, it's a um, very interesting yeah. mix. Very. Yeah. Rebecca, I want to start um, towards the end of your essay um, at a section you called Draining the Swamp. And it turns out Australians think we are mired in the swamp of, of politics. And what comes out so strongly in your interviews, and of course this has been a long time coming, is that any optimism that Australians might have had about our politics has long since gone. But what surprised me is you are now actually recording comments from people whereby Australians feel the actual the system is almost rigged against them. So what are you picking up on? Yes, and I think this is really interesting because obviously draining the swamp refers very much to the kind of Trumpian view about the political class there. And that can be quite damaging, you know. I mean, it's a damaging concept, really, and it has been damaging in America. And, and certainly anybody who, like me, who in the past has said, you know, I'm worried about 
the professionalisation of politics to many professional politicians. I think we can see what happened when we've got an unprofessional politician. We, that's not necessarily a good situation. I think the, the, the concept around the system being rigged here is actually a much more progressive impulse. And it all centres around people's sense that the, the corporate money that goes into the two major political parties is a real barrier to reform. And I've been finding that again and again in the work I've been doing around the country is that um, particularly if you put any kind of progressive reform to, um, in front of um, even quite conservative voters or swinging voters or any, any voters of any kind and you say, do you support these policies? Do you think they're a good idea? They go, yep. Do you think they're going to happen? No. And you go, even under a Labor government? No, because the money that goes to that political party that funds the campaigns, they don't want that to stop. And any genuine reform of the tax system, which would see corporations paying their fair share or big um, donors to parties paying their fair share or anything that would disrupt the system, um, they're not going to do anything about. They're not going to turn that tap off. And I think, more interestingly as well, there's this sense that politicians want that kind of yellow, you know, brick road from politics into, into the board or, you know, into uh, a corporate lobbying position. So this is just something that this is kind of... You mean, that, you mean they don't buy it when retiring politicians say they want to spend more time with their no. families? <laughs> no? no? No. They think they're headed for the boardroom? They think that's a euphemism for <laughs> spending more... I mean, you know, somebody like Barnaby Joyce wants to spend time with many of his families. I mean, clearly, if, they've ever, if he ever decides to leave politics. I mean, look, I'm, I'm sure that's a genuine reason why some people want to leave, but it's a, I think it's more a kind of an anxiety about the close connection of money and politics, and that has changed. In, in When I was running Mind and Mood, I didn't see that quite as talked about quite as much as it has in the last five years, and of course... So what's happened, do you think, in five years? they're picking up on? I think a couple of things. I think they wonder why um, they connect the amount of money that's going to both political parties from fossil fuel companies as maybe why our parliaments have been incapable of moving forward on that. Um, I think there's a little bit more precise reporting on it. I think The Guardian particularly has reported on this. So I think there's there's a bit more of an awareness. And I think what's more important is there's this view, there used to be this view very much, certainly in, came out in Hugh McKay's work, that um, money runs American politics, but there's just not enough at stake in Australia, and that's certainly not the case. I mean, it still shocked me, and I know this is an you know, interest of your, yours, Maxine, you've talked about it for many years, just how much undisclosed money circulates in the system. And it, it's shocking amounts of money, and I remember doing a panel with John Hewson, who I, I quite like last year at, at Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And I was talking about this and he said, oh, look, it's just overstated how much the connection is. It's, it, there's no direct influence, there's no bribery. And I said, okay, I'm prepared to believe that. So let's change the disclosure laws. We can't measure how influential this money is unless we know where it's coming from, who's donating it. It, it's really a quite, quite crazy. But it, I certainly think that this kind of attitude, this kind of perception that money rules both political parties and there's this desire for the people in politics to have that road into corporate Australia is one of the reasons fueling cynicism about real reform in Australia. And, and one would have to say, I mean, the, the political paralysis on this is astonishing. I mean, to go back to your old boss, Senator John Faulkner yep. fought the good fight on this 
uh, in the, the Rudd government. I mean, he, he had an extraordinary white paper out there talking about the arms race in campaign yep. financing. But I, I remember, you know, John is Delphic, as you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, but, but he certainly um, was, was open about how little support he could garner in either the party room or in the cabinet room. And look, to get reform. And part of that is because it's very difficult to construct reform that also doesn't scoop up the whole issue of union donations. So it becomes vexed for the Labor Party for that reason. Um, and certainly I think if any, if what I argue for in the essay is that environmental concerns for the Labor Party have to be placed in the centre of everything the Labor Party does. There has to be a fundamental philosophical shift about how they look at the environment and climate change. That is going to challenge the connection between the Labor Party and the unions that have traditionally supported those workers in those industries. I think um, a transition or a reform or a change in that area is possible. But it's, it's difficult. It's, it is going to require um, quite a lot of capital spent and a quite a lot of risk-taking for political leaders to really take that on. So the Labor Party has the double problem. They never get as much money from corporate Australia as the Conservatives. They're like the second son. <laughs> you give most of the money to the first son and a bit of money to the second son if you're a patriarch, and I think that that's how corporate Australia looks at um, political donations, but they're still getting that money and then there's the added difficulty of union donations on top of that. Well, I guess that, that brings us to, I, th I think, I really like the way you phrased this in, in your essay. You, you look at, in your essay, um, the, the scenario of a, a likely shortened government and say, not what will it do, but what it could do. Just talk us through that. Yeah, and so this was... In terms of turning around this, this massive disenchantment. So I was thinking about, and this is very much, I want to thank Chris, um, who is my editor in the, uh, at the quarterly essay, because he really pushed me on this, um, about really thinking about what a, a new federal government, if it's a Labor government, would do. I suppose it goes back to some of the work that I do in the essay about how we might revive social democracy. And I use the work of Tony Jupt, who was a fantastic um, uh, mainly a history professor, but he talked about the whole issue of social democracy and how it can be revived post kind of global financial crisis. And he said, you know, the fundamental question for any social democrat is, um, and any decision of government is, is it the right thing? What's the right thing to do? And um, that's not the end of the conversation because obviously what can be done and what can be achieved is part of it. Um, so I suppose before we even have a, a, a shortened government, before we even think about what's possible or what he is going to do, I want to think about what is possible for a Labor government to do, given how the majority of the population feel on a range of issues, on issues about the gap between rich and poor, issues around wages, issues around climate, issues around the, you know, the market versus government. And one of the things that occurred to me in the last couple of days when I was thinking about that foundational question is, is this decision the right decision? Not is it productive or is it possible or is it practical? Is that one of the... I was remembering when I was at Ipsos, they decided, it was a big research company I was at for a short period... Well, about 10 years, actually, sort of a short period of time. Um, they took us to negotiation training, you know, so we could screw more money out of our uh, clients. Nice. And... 
One of the fundamental things about negotiation is you don't negotiate against yourself first. So you don't ask for what you think they're going to give you, you ask for what you want. And then what they'll give, you know, then, then that's the starting point. And I don't know if um, people, on, on, particularly in the Labor Party, ever think, what do we really want? Not what will the electorate give us, because I think there's some wrong-headed ideas about this, or what's possible, what's practical. That fundamental question, what is it that we actually want? What does a good society look like? That should be the starting point. And too often when I talk about the kinds of things that people in my groups talk about, the kind of Australia they want, Labor strategists will say, oh, but then this will happen and that will happen, and they kind of dismiss it too quickly. They don't try and imagine... Well, Rebecca, could I say that's because, I mean, so many... Uh, too many, let me put it this way, too many people in the Labor Party, and I'm still a fully paid up member of the Labor Party, me too. right? I'll be out, I will be out there campaigning on, on election day. Me too. Um, but too many Labor people um, and Labor MPs dismiss Australians as the mob. That is how they talk about them and That's that true. is how they think about them. It yeah. is dismissive, it is disgusting. So if That's you true. think like that, why would you think? What do we want, as in visionary and all the rest yeah. of it? No, I think that's right. And, and sometimes... So one of the things that Labor strategists had been saying to me for the last 12 months was... And I, I know I'm in Victoria and it's a very um, particular kind of political climate, but um, people were saying to me, look, as long as we have a family name with a couple of kids next to Gladys who will be up there on her own, the optics will be clear and people will make their decision Gee, based that on that. Yeah, that worked out well. It did, it did. They really know what they're talking about. So, and I remember thinking, I just don't think that is the case. Mm. But all right, if that's what you think. But that was genuinely a view of people who um, have a say and have influence in this kind of area. Um, and so I've seen so many odd um, judgments by people who, who uh, have an important say and control in the Labor Party about what people accept and not accept, that is at odds with the kinds of conversations I've been privy to, that I always are, I'm always a bit sceptical about those kinds of views about the mob won't accept this. One of the things that's been said to me consistently is that, oh, people don't care about you know, political reviving democracy or donations to politics. Just, just, you just care about housing and, you know, food and prices. It's bananas. a very reductionist view, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, 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 and if that's an issue, it's an inner city latte, you know, turmeric latte issue of the chattering classes or whatever. Um, and that's actually not the case. I mean, I, I talk about this very intimate link between concern about money and politics and concern about genuine reform. That was said to me, I was in Townsville, a guy who used to be an orderly in, a, in the hospital and then was now a kind of nighttime security guy. He talked about it very clearly. He even talked about what he thinks, you know, these staffers in politics all their life and they just think the only work that they can get is in corporate affairs at a... And, and I can guarantee you, the man had never read the monthly. <laughs> he was not. He was not kind of reading yeah. from the same kind of, yeah. you know, ABC yeah. stroke, you know, liberal yeah. okay. latte script. Okay. Now, if 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 the people that you you talk with in, in your groups across the country mm. um, are feeling the system is rigged against them, does it mean they have reset their expectations and 
they only want certain things from government? No, I think that is the thing that um, I really hope that in everything I write, people walk away with some optimism. I, I don't um, about their fellow Australians, and um, I hope they get that through the stories I share of the people I meet. But some of the most optimistic and exciting figures, this is what a dag I am, were coming out of the Australian Electoral Commission. And I was looking at trends over time. And one of the most amazing things was in the, is that informal voting, incidents of informal voting, which for pretty much everybody knows what it is, but just, you know, when people mark a ballot, which in somehow makes it invalid. And there's all kinds of informal voting. There's deliberate and, and not deliberate. Um, and there's also... Um, you know, people drawing funny little things on their ballot as a way of protest. In this time of kind of leadership changes and, and for Australian standards turmoil, informal voting in Australia has actually declined slightly. So, and this is the thing, in Australia you are compelled for the various kind of carrots and sticks or sausages and fines to turn up to the ballot, but nobody's standing over you to mark that piece of paper, and yet Australians still do. So they're still taking the process seriously. They are. Now, maybe sometimes they're just getting into the ballot box and thinking at that moment, OK, what am I going to do? Or they make the decision. But we've also seen a, 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 a rise, which is interesting, of people voting well before the ballot. But I thought this kind of, you know, this, you would expect that if there was genuine cynicism or wanting to opt out of the system, you'd see a steady increase in informal voting and you're not. The same-sex marriage survey was an extraordinary moment, no matter what the result, of Australians still thinking, okay, I'm actually going to be part of this process. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, it was an awful way to get that extraordinary result. So I still see signs of, despite this inc incredible sense of frustration with our politicians, still trust in the system that, and still are, are, people are turning up. People are turning up. And I think we don't want to tax that goodwill for too long but it's a, something that has really um, stood us in good stead. Another wonderful book that's come out, Judith Brett has written basically a love letter to compulsory voting. Mm. And we have a lot to thank for for compulsory voting. And again, you would think over this period of time where people are so angry at politicians that there'd be a significant rise in opposition to compulsory voting, not the case. So for, some, for whatever reason, Australians' belief in the importance of government, their belief in democracy, at least as a structure, perhaps not with the outcome of democracy, but at least in a structure kind of is holding up. And I think that that should keep us enormously optimistic. It should make us feel like that we need to protect that because even though it makes me very optimistic, I can kind of look over at Brexit and I can look over mm. at Trump and realise that all that has to happen is you have to kind of continue to put pressure on that goodwill, something happens, and then how the hell yeah. do you unravel that? Well, you, you have a lovely line um, at, this, or at the start of your essay, um, say that really what Australians want from a government is um, a society where it's hard to get a gun and easy to get good health care. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've nailed it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that, I mean, look, that's, a, that's an and indirect... there's a lot of wisdom in that. That's, that's, that's that saying we don't want to be America. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And also we want, we are open to the idea that if there's social licence for an outcome, Australians are prepared to sanction kind of government interference that would make other societies blanch. The idea that, and we have to thank your, the guy you beat for. <laughs> the former for, member yeah, for Benelong. Well, the former, former member for Benelong for doing that. And, and you say a lot of things about John Howard at his prime, he read the population. He knew what was possible and he knew that that would be possible. Um, and I mean, one of the things that's just made me a bit, if for those of you maybe watching politics and seeing what happened in New South Wales, there's been um, a, a really uh, good result for the shooters, fishers and farmers party. And people I think have erroneously suggested that's because Australians um, even Australians in, in regional rural areas are thinking differently about gun control. Not the case. That is the failure of the National Party. That is the fundamental failure of the National Party to understand the issues in rural and regional Australia. And in my research in rural, rural and regional Australia, and it varies because we're talking about vastly different populations in different states, you know, really fundamental things like good quality NBN and healthcare services and water and the recognition that, that climate change is real, whether it's caused by human beings or not, people in rural and regional Australia are living with it every day, and a growing perception that the National Party is, has been bought by the mining industry to some extent, that their connection, let's say, to um, people who work on the land rather than under it is being eroded, and very much the kind of backlash to the National Party members who might have been born on the land then went and lived in the city and bought an Akubra hat and occasionally stand in front of a cow in front of elections. And, and that is why, you know, when I hear those shooters and fishers, they're talking about services. They're talking about jobs for young people. They're talking about city towns that they don't want to be ghost towns. They're talking about mm. good connection, good technology. Um, they're talking about water resources, all the things that the National Party have not talked about. So when you look at their success, it's not everybody wants gun laws to I was be just relaxed. Say, backing up, backing that absolutely is a piece that I think I noticed Gabriel Chan has yeah, got in the Guardian piece. today saying exactly the same thing. The Nationals, a long time ago, stopped talking to farmers and only listened to miners, to your point about yeah. vested interests. And unfortunate name, shooters, what are they? Shooters, shooters fishers. fishers and Okay, right, okay, we'll get ahead around. Um, uh, doing all of the things you just described, yeah. yeah that's right, yeah. and, and they're, they're very canny at picking their candidates and very canny at yeah. working Former out. police prosecutors, um, yeah, agronomists, uh, uh, yeah. Small very business owners, they're, they're really, okay. um, they've I'll, got it. I'll come back to the New South Wales election, if you'll forgive us. I'm happy Victoria, to talk about because the Victorian it, election as well. Yeah, okay. I, I want to go to the, to, the, to the big one, and... Um, I'm leaving back now to the start of your essay, and you quote a conversation in your family, which is discussion about the possibility of a future shortened government. Tell us about that exchange. <laughs> so my, it's a beauty. My, my dad is. Um, my dad. My dad's not lived in Australia for a long time, so he's on. He's Australia's representative on the International Court in the Hague. So he 
hasn't lived in Australia for 25 years, but of course he kind of, in some ways, he has a connection to whoever the Attorney General is. Um, um, he's, I think he occasionally still refers to Mr Brandis as the guy with the books shelves. <laughs> so um, anyway, so uh, he's always takes a bit of an interest. I think it's a perception that I have some kind of insider um, views, but anyway, he always asks me about what this person's like and what the other person's like. Um, and so he said to me, what will Prime Minister, what will a Prime Minister Shorten be like? And I just was like, look, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine. And my sister quipped, well, we've gone from it's time to it's fine in 30 years. She Talk said, about reset our <laughs> expectations. She said, that's, that's not progress really, is it, Rebecca? And I was like, no, no, I don't mean to kind of damn with faint praise, but I suppose, um, I think in a sense I was channeling um, the sense that the electorate have been, you know, deeply disappointed with two leaders on on the left and the right. Perhaps their heightened expectations itself is the problem. I don't think that I think that we shouldn't have a kind of a one guy saves the country in the same way that um, nobody should think anybody's going to save anybody in romantic relationships or otherwise. But I think that disappointment has been palpable, and so. It's understandable that people are a bit burnt and kind of, um, and that in fact everybody, even political insiders, are just thinking, well, let's just see how it goes. Um, my, my sense, based on absolutely yeah. nothing but my own prejudice, yeah. <laughs> is that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of us would settle for competence, yeah. consistency, yeah. a government that doesn't treat the public service yeah. like a bunch of novices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, appreciates expertise yeah. where it genuinely Absolutely. is. Yeah. That organises their offices so that uh, policy advisors, advisors have some ascendancy over the communications directors. I'm getting, I'm getting. No, no, you're really getting. Uh, yeah, I'm getting into getting it. Now. Specific now. Am I? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I think, I think, you know, what you often, what I hear in groups is. Well, he doesn't look like he's deranged or things like that. He kind of looks like he's not got a, a significant personality disorder that's going to set. You know what I mean? So this is, I mean, this isn't just about Australian general politics. It's, it, this is important language. But I mean, I think what we're saying is that it is, and in fact, at the, the end of the essay, I, I, met, I kind of talk about what I think expectations are from a, a Bill Shorten government, and I say we don't need another hero. We need to, a guy who's kind of professional, seems to lead a, a good team, and and can both lead that team in terms of the inner circle and the outer circle stakeholders, and provide some stability, which is what mostly people want. They want a kind of sense that um, that somebody has enough stability in their own party and government to be able to step out of their caucus room and spend most of the time talking to the Australian people about the kinds of changes that are not, not only that we want, that are going to be inevitably forced upon us as we see globally more and more challenges from everything from the economy to AI to, um, uh, and to obviously to climate change. To come to the fairness, which is the, mm. the issue you're central to your, to your essay, and I, you quote, um, I think, the OECD figures, which show that um, inequality in Australia um, is now above, inequality is above the OECD average. Yep. Clearly, Shorten and Chris Bowen are talking about the importance of the restoration of wage justice. Yep. 
is this the kind of number one thing for them to get on top of? If, 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 if you like, low and middle income people, I'd, I'd feel they've still got a stake in the society. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that, I think that what we're going to see in the next election is a... Um, is that this is going to be the pointy end. Labor will be talking about wage justice and you already see the opposition saying, well, we can achieve that by tax cut. It's the same thing at the end. Um, you'll see the, the Conservatives saying, we've got a surplus, which means we can spend, and the Labor Party's just going to spend, spend, spend and get us back into debt. So you, I think those economic issues are going to be kind of front and centre in the, rest, in the, in the election. I think... One of the things that's really clear is that, and you see it in some of the numbers and I see it in, in the way people talk to me about um, their lives. So it's everything from middle class, you know, baby boomer parents saying, we educated our kids, I've got, you know, all of my kids are in full-time work, working hard, their partners are working hard. And honestly, it's not because they're, you know, eating avocados, they, we just, there's just no way they're going to be able to afford anything other than maybe a small apartment by the time they're 35. Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane. Sydney or Melbourne. But all, and then what you also get is you get in, and this is, you get in regional Australia, people saying, well, my kids can afford an apartment here, they just can't get a full-time job. They've got one or two or three part-time jobs, often se can be seasonal, go up and down, mm. so they're, um, they've, or they've got to travel really long distances to get a full-time job, or they've got to move to a capital city in which the balance of the full-time job and then being able to, mm. to, to live and then save for a house. So, this, so there's this perception that educated, hard-working people are not able to get ahead. And some of this is generational and some of this is... And that, that is altering our notion of what it is to have the good life in Australia. That's right. I think it's more expansive than this. I mean, the fact that that is happening to the kind of the, the full-time working middle class is something that should scare the Liberal Party. But something that's really clear from the electorate more broadly, and I, I, that's why I focus so much on housing policy, is there's a small but significant shift in, in views about people who are visibly homeless. And that's been really important. Previously, most of the data shows that people thought that homeless people were either mentally ill or addicts or choosing to be homeless. There's been laid upon that over time a recognition that people who are visibly homeless might in fact be, have issues around domestic violence at home or especially if they're young or women. But increasingly, people are being finding a way to connect the visibly homeless and getting their mind around the idea that there are people who are, um, are the invisible homeless, might be moving from houses to What, what comments are you picking up on? That that is connected oh, to yeah. the whole, the failure of the market to provide, um, to provide fairness in terms of something as fundamental as where we live. So previously, there was quite a lot, you know, this kind of idea of the deserving and undeserving poor. Mm. That still, even in a place like Australia, was present. I'm interested in something like housing that people are connecting the dots. They are talking in the same way about, you know, their kids who are educated and full-time working can't, you know, find it really hard to rent and save and then get into their own home. Then they go very easily to talk about, you know, we know that there are some people out there, particularly older women, in really precarious home, um, housing environment, and that must mean one of the reasons why I'm seeing more people on the streets homeless. So that connection, I think, is really significant, and 
And it's not so much an us and them thing in relation to something like that. And it's, it is fundamentally because people have realised that the argument that if we just let the market run the housing, um, housing situation, we release a bit more land, we give people first homeowners grants, it'll all sort itself out. If you're hardworking and educated, um, it'll be fine. And people are like, well, it's not, it really but isn't that simple. Rebecca, we've already had a taste. Um, really, from, from, from the summer, um, a taste of the scare campaign that the Liberals will run yep. against all of the policies Chris yep. Bowen is talking about. So, yep. um, are Australians knowing that and recognising that homeless is a, homelessness is of a different order now, yep. are they going to be more accepting of policies that alter negative gearing and, uh, and capital gains tax at all? So, I definitely think if... Um, so the only thing, the only proviso, so there's been consistently a reasonable level of support for what are quite modest changes to negative gearing. Um, and that has held up despite the fact that um, there's been a kind of downward, well, I would say kind of, people say the bubble's bursting, but you know, the, the prices were still huge um, in housing. So, that, so I think that's held up reasonably well. Franking credit sees a little bit more esoteric, but when explained properly, people, are, you know, in my groups are like, "Wow, that's what's that about? <laughs> yeah, how can I get it? How can I um, get a piece of that?" Um, so, <laughs> so I think I think the the difficulty for Labor. So I think it's absolutely possible that they can make those kinds of arguments, if and if the Labor Party is talking about a return on investment of those changes to greater, you know, a, a fulfilment of some of the policies they've already um, committed to in relation to health, education, investment in renewables um, and so forth. It's a, it's a big argument and they've got a big lead up to yeah. it. Well, look, I, I mean, I'd love to think that's doable, yeah. that kind of advocacy. On the other hand, I also, um, my sense is many people are fe feeling the world is so chaotic, we have so such little control over it, we'll just draw in, draw up the drawbridge and look after our own. And if that means we've got an investment property on the side that the kids can inherit or whatever, that's, we'll look after that. Yeah, although... There, that sentiment I sense is quite strong still. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that kind of fear of the outside world is there. It's, it's expressed primarily in relation to immigration more than anything else. Um, I will make the point that pretty much all the younger people I talk to whose parents have investment properties don't think they're going to inherit them <laughs> because they've all got a bit of a taste of what it means to put somebody in reasonable aged care in this country. It's a lot of money. It's a huge commitment. So this kind so of so the inheritance will be blown. Yeah, in fact, in, in what I talk about a particular project that I did, where I interviewed two generations of people who had investment properties and their children, and the main driver for investing in a property other than your own home was concern about retirement and um, having enough super to cover retirement, and also to maintain a certain lifestyle. Um, that was very much part of it. And the, the secondary issue was, we'll give the money to the kids. None of the kids thought that there'd be any money left. 
<laughs> so there's going to be no money left because they're going to live till 95. They're going to have titanium knees and Botox and they will be like, you know, it'll be like the Terminator. It'll just keep going and going and going and that's absolutely fine. Um, the grandchildren might get it. So I, I understand what you're trying to say, that kind of let's just keep the status quo happening. But... I mean, the data doesn't seem to suggest that for me. I mean, and part of Labor's strategy is saying, um, with these kinds of um, with these kinds of structures that don't benefit everybody, right? They're not we're not widely distributed. Not everybody's getting ten, twenty, thirty, hundred thousand dollars, you know, from the franking credits um, uh, scheme, or not everybody's got an investment property. That the, those kinds of changes and relatively modest changes, you're going to see come back to you in all the kinds of services that you say are important. But see, the critical thing, Maxine, and this is hard, is that people trust that that will, but that exchange will actually happen. And so that is the critical thing, which is that you're going to change this, and am I going to see the return? Mm. And so that's where trust in the system. Um, and particularly this idea that um, that politicians are prepared because the whole issue of corporate donations has been dealt with in some way to really put that investment in the broad population rather than this boon from these kinds of tax changes kind of headed off somewhere else. That's, um, you know, that is a real... Building that trust that that's going to happen is pretty critical. I, I want to get to the important issue of climate change and then I'm going to be coming out to the audience very, very soon. Let's just talk about um, the under-30s. Um, any, any particular pointers to what, what they're saying to you? And, of course, I happen to... I mean, we, we can't ignore it. It's a nice segue to climate change, actually. That extraordinary demonstration by... Young students yeah, in, was, in the streets in many amazing. capital cities a couple of weekends yeah. ago saying, you know, this is our world. We're going yeah. to protect it. Climate change. Folks, what don't you get? That really was the most profound act of leadership that I've seen for some time. And we've had we've got some good climate change communicators and um, in our in our culture, but perhaps not enough. Um, because we need different kinds of people prepared to talk about climate change to different communities. So that was an extraordinary moment. One of the things that's coming out of the Lowy Institute poll that happens every year is that there's a developing gender gap, oh sorry, developing generation gap appearing, not so much in, in, in whether people should vote or you know, whether the vote's important or anything, but just the idea of whether democracy is fighting fit to deal with issues. Mm that we have facing us and whether it's it's fulfilled its promise. And we absolutely have to address that pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, you have different people writing about whether climate change demands a totalitarian state because to start to, you know, to, to work on our political system and to work to get everybody to get to kind of get an even greater majority than we have now, and to try and um, try and deal with the climate denialists in our parliament in our parliaments and our political parties that are stopping change, we just don't have that time. Time's yeah. ticking. But, but Rebecca, the flip side of the I mean, yes, yes, one can lament, and it's it is yeah. it is risk slashing to look at the ten years of policy paralysis. It really, we is. all know about that. On the other hand, it seems to me probably in a very you know perhaps two years. We've seen such a shift. I mean, so many consumers are switched on to yeah. solar power. Yeah. 
The commercial interest now yeah. in investment in large-scale solar yeah. is extraordinary. You see that domestically, you see it internationally. Yeah. You've got a British billionaire in South Australia who's saying he's going to basically reboot Wyala through yeah. renewables. Yeah. That's all saying to me that, in fact, um, both business and consumers have moved way beyond Canberra. Absolutely. They've left them behind. No, that's absolutely right. And, and they're the ones showing leadership, which makes perhaps the yawning gap between... Uh, um, political parties and them worse, but we still need governments. Like we, there's only mm. so much yes. that business and um, individuals can do. And so we do need government to, um, to catch up. And one of the interesting things is climate has... Well, there's always a, there's always a very neat combination of political inaction and extreme weather events that suddenly makes climate go up. But for the first time in the New South Wales election, climate kind of was in the top three of issues that people were concerned about. But the, the, the hardest thing is sustaining that because the only thing that will make politicians change is a sustained public call for change because one of the things that has happened in this country and other countries is that we'll have a particularly bad series of storms and hot weather and everybody will freak out, and then that stops, and people move back. And because it is to, to maintain the kind of interest and focus, and to really look climate change and the challenges in the eye 24-7 is utterly exhausting. And it's utterly <laughs> exhausting for people. And when there's no political leadership, it's worse. Because you kind of feel it all for, oh my God, if I don't recycle these plastic straws or whatever. <laughs> You know, my children will die. That's just, it's, it's not fair. And, 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 and entrepreneurial people in business, in civil society and consumers have been leading the charge and we just have been let down by our parliamentarians so but the, but the other, But the other political shift, though, that's underway yeah. is, is the number of independent liberal candidates who Absolutely. are out there and climate change is at the top of their list. Now, to go Absolutely. to that other really interesting seat of Warringah, <laughs> where I used to live in another lifetime... When Tony Abbott performed his, what, his fourth vault farce on yeah, yeah. climate change, yes, you, yes. you said what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I said he's desperate. And I know he is. Apparently, for my friends that live there, he's standing on median strips it, while people are driving past with a sign, <laughs> waving, and then walking around. How about around. that making your morning, <laughs> eh? Seven o'clock, you know, you're on the spit road. <laughs> oh, and going around to, to libraries saying, look at this. You put books in. You take them out. Who knew? <laughs> so he is, he is, he is wandering the streets <laughs> in a way that would make Neighbourhood Watch call the cops. <laughs> there is a strange man <laughs> with his phone walking the streets. Um, so he's... Look, I mean, it, Warringah's a very different seat than Wentworth, but he's going to get the shock of his life. But I don't think... I think that the thing that's absolutely clear about... I've met a lot of climate change resistors and denialists in my time. They are more open-minded than the denialists in Canberra. Because the reality is if you are one of those parliamentarians who denies climate change, everything is, you know, everything, your position on Sky After Dark and your, you know, um, your friendship circle and everything in the media is reliant upon you holding that line. I've seen more people in the community change their view from this isn't a real threat to a threat easier than people in parliament. But I also say that people in parliament are more, I, I judge them 
much more harshly than the people in the community because of their denial about climate change. Climate change denialists in the community are just, you know, they're trying to live their lives, they have jobs, they're accountants and all the rest of it. It's not their responsibility to care about this issue. It's not their responsibility to read the science and get their mind around it. So we've been so badly, he has been such a destructive and corrosive influence on our politics, on the Liberal Party, on our broader politics, um, and particularly in relation to climate, worse than any, you know, um, award he could bestow on a royal, he's done that. And so I very much hope that he's um, beaten. It's a very hard to do, but, um, but, you know, he's absolutely desperate. So he's kind of twisting in the wind. Um, mm. And also mm. just to get media as well, he's changed his position, I think, quite a few times as a way of... Look at me. Sad, sad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, OK. Let's, let's come out to our, our audience. Uh, yes, right, right down the end there. Right, no, no, right down the end. Yep, right. yep. That's right. Keep your hand up. That should work. Okay. Why are the Liberal Party so afraid of women and having women MPs? Oh, I don't know if I don't know much about the Liberal Party. I, I do think that there is. Um, I think, and, I, and the example I gave about people in Labor circles saying that, you know, the public would look at Gladys and then look at a family man with kids and make their own decisions. I think the, the makeup of the community has changed so dramatically and for whatever reason, politicians across the board have not clocked onto that. I don't know why they haven't. And so I think there is still some very conventional ideas about what leadership looks like. Um, there's lots of messages coming their way that they shouldn't think like that. Look at how people have responded to Jacinta Ardern. Look at, um, we've now got two premiers in two of our most popular states with quite long and previously, some would say, unpronounceable surnames who are not married, who do not have children. They seem to be incredibly professional and they seem to be doing well. Um, some people even said that your Premier, when he started, everybody thought that he looked like, you know, the first speaker in the University of Steadford team, you know, and everybody was like, who's this guy? He's done extraordinarily well. So sometimes I think there's a very weird idea about women leaders and what the electorate will feel and whether they're listened to by their colleagues, whether they have authority. And it just doesn't necessarily gel with where the majority of people are. I mean, one of the quotes that I use in the um, essay was something George Megalogenis wrote about the, the census data showing the diversity of the Australian po population, but the parliament still remaining. I mean, it has changed, but still remaining pretty white, pretty professional, um, um, more and more female, but still particularly white, just doesn't reflect the experience of um, and the makeup of Australia. So I think that that um, gender blindness from the Liberal Party is a problem. But the other thing too is they've been philosophically absolutely opposed to the idea that that um, there should be quotas for gender, not for other things. There's a huge quota for idiot men. Uh, it's a silent quota. <laughs> and there's probably and for, the a quota for, and for national representation <laughs> in cabinet. Absolutely. <laughs> there's probably a quota for people who don't believe about climate change. There's those kinds of quotas, but they don't but so they've they've assiduously said that it's about merit and that women will rise up in the ranks through merit, 
Well, it was really clear in the leadership ballot when um, uh, Julie Bishop was overlooked that it's not it's not really about merit, it's about other things. So um, I think that's there's a lot of reasons why. There's a disconnect between where political parties are and where the community is, and I also think the Liberal Party have generally an opposition to the idea that you should say, look, this is where we want to go, and, um, and it hasn't served them well at all. And in fact, what has happened is some of their strongest candidates who are women have stepped away. Um, that, and that is a problem. So that's a self. So the more professional and 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 um, high-performing women step away, they're not they're not going to have a woman like that necessarily step in I, to take their place. I've, all got the time. To say, I've got a different view on Julie Bishop. Yeah, she was in the number two job for too long. Right. If you want to be number one, you get out of the number two right. slot. Okay. Another question. Yes. And I'll come over here. On the question of immigration, yep. on the question of immigration, is it possible for the Labor Party, if they are elected, to reset a more sensible and humane approach to immigration in a way which recognises the sins of the past and captures the imagination of Australia's? What a beautiful question. Um, you know, I really, I've toyed with this for a very long time because as much. Most, a lot of my research over many years has been about attitudes to immigration. Um, I talk about in the essay that I think it was, and this is well before the Medivac bill, I said it was absolutely possible that the Labor Party could take a view that offshore detention in Manus and Nauru was um, um, not working and, and not because of, that was because that's what um, undecided voters in the seat of Dixon were telling me <laughs> um, when I was doing work there was this idea that that um, that the people there that it wasn't just inhumane it was kind of messy bureaucratically messy um, so there was still this kind of adherence to the idea that there's a queue and so their objection to Manus and Nauru was that these people had they might have jumped the queue, but they were in some kind of a queue and the queue wasn't moving and that was kind of somehow not fair, right? So, um, which is a very, very kind of, it's not the best, it's very far from what is the right thing to do. It's more about, this is about procedural unfairness and this is kind of administrative approach to that, which sometimes undermines this idea that these are human beings that deserve to be treated humanely. I think that what's happened on asylum seekers has flummoxed so many social democratic um, and left of centre parties all around the world. They've struggled with it. They've struggled with finding a way to say to people that the kinds of, you know, um, issues around immigration and issues around asylum, um, which make people very anxious can be dealt with in a way that doesn't mean that their quality of life or that their security is somehow compromised. So there's a, it's not just a challenge for the Labor Party, but it's been one where since Tampa it's taken on a life of its own. There's been lots of people very reluctant to deal with it head on. Um, there was almost this kind of, I wouldn't say it's a straw man, but there was Whenever you would talk about this in the party, they'd say, but the western suburbs of Sydney, <laughs> the western suburbs of Sydney, they won't accept this. You know, they won't accept anything other than, you know, the, the, 
the harshest possible, you know, it, uh, policies around asylum seekers that are almost indistinguishable from um, the Liberal Party. So I have no answers. I think I think that there are, um, there could be consistently an argument mounted for an end to all offshore detention on the basis that it's expensive and can't be controlled, that whereas even though we're stopping these people coming onto our shore, we are relying so much on other countries, some countries that themselves haven't got um, the administrative um, abilities or they haven't, you know, we're, we're, basically, we're, we're basically outsourcing, we're offshoring the solutions to a problem that almost every country in the world has, which is issues around immigration, which is around asylum. So that's asylum seekers. Immigration is a really, again, it's always been challenging for Australia and in some senses the political class have been um, let down by the complete and utter lack of leadership by the business community. Privately they say that our, our, the rhetoric on immigration is damaging, that they don't accept it, that they don't support it, that they think it's actually bad for the economy. They very, very rarely say that publicly, because it looks like they're attacking the Liberal Party or the National Party. So they've been, I think, I don't want to generalise, but a lot of them, it's just extraordinary to me off the record how many of them talk about how they find the language of racism and the discussion around immigration problematic, damaging to brand Australia and Asia, but they won't stand, they won't stand up and talk about it. So um, we have a we don't have enough leaders in, in our political parties talking about immigration in, as you, I think you put it in a beautiful way, I can't remember the words that you said, thoughtful, pardon, humane way. Speaks to the imagination of the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then we're also lacking other leaders in other communities. Um, and particularly in the business community. Well, now, Rebecca, let me bring you back to the, the, the harshness of the New South Wales result <laughs> and, and the soon-to-be former leader of the Labor Party yes. in that state, yeah. who managed to almost exceed the former former member for Benelong yeah. in race baiting <laughs> with that yeah. comment about, you know, Asians with PhDs. I mean, this is the centre-left. No, well, I don't know. I don't know. what What is really what is so emblematic what, what is so interesting about that comment and which shows how um oh, i don't know how to describe him and that is that is that often in groups that i conduct people will talk about overpopulation casualization of jobs greater pressure on our cities lack of infrastructure and they will connect that with um a particular ethnic group, whether it be a highly skilled group or a, or a group that they assume have no skills, right? I think we all know that there are asylum seekers with PhDs. There are refugees with, with, um, asylum with engineering degrees. So there's this also weird dichotomy between skilled migrants and people coming here um, on, with asylum and on, on asylum, um, you know, seeking asylum. So, one of the problems is that a skilled leader would realise that when you talk about something like immigration, you can pinball into many, many topics of anxiety for people. Um, 
when you talk about population, you could talk about anything, and some of those issues were with cultural, social, economic, doesn't matter. So, I mean, I'm trying to be generous. Maybe he was trying to articulate an anxiety that people have, which is that greater immigration means our children are, are kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to jobs and they have to move elsewhere and all the rest of it. But these are fears not necessarily founded in fact and, and a leader shouldn't um, re-articulate them, should never be caught um, parroting those issues. They'd be spending all their rhetorical skill and intellectual energy, I suppose that's it, <laughs> if they have it, in, in arguing why that is just not the case. But let me, give you, let me give you an example of how this happens all the time. I was asked to, I was rung up in the beginning of December, I was asked to give a talk. They said, oh, can you come and give a talk about the future of Sydney? And I said, fine. They said, well, you've got to kind of talk before... So who's they? Well, this is the thing. This is a friend of mine who organises talks. And she said, oh, there's going to be... It's going to crowd and this is other talker and they want you to set up the talk and make it really energetic and engaging and based on fact. And I said, well, who's the other speaker? And they said, oh, it's the Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> and I said, right, so I need to give an entertaining fact-based talk before a boring fact talk based on fantasy that the Prime Minister is going to deliver. But anyway, he was delivering the Bradfield Oration, which is... Which is um, sponsored by the University of Sydney and the Telegraph about the future of Sydney, named after Bradfield, who was the Sydney Morning, it's a, the Sydney um, Harbour Bridge architect. So it was Miranda Devine, the Premier, me, and <laughs> the Prime Minister. I didn't think they'd let me in the room. I thought that they would background me. And it was very interesting. Two things happened that were notable about this crowd that was largely a conservative crowd. The first is there was one very, very senior um, businessman and Labor Party person, uh, Liberal Party person, were standing around and Miranda Devine said, oh, um, Tony, would you like to meet Rebecca Huntley? And he said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, I just want to tell you something. And I said, okay, what? And he said, the flowers look wonderful and the catering is excellent. You've done an excellent job. <laughs> and I was like, and Miranda Devine staring at me and I'm like, yes, the flowers are excellent. And then we're standing around and um, they'd place me in between the Prime Minister and the Premier. And he said, they gave you a nice seat. They gave you a good seat. I said, they did. He's still, he's yes, still he at did. it. He stood. And then when they introduced me, I got up and he had that look on his face like, why is the caterer getting up to talk for the Premier? And I just gave him a little wink. <laughs> Anyway, so that happened. So the Liberal Party... Who was he? No, come on, name oh, no, him. No, 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 I can't. Name him. The Liberal Party has a problem with women. That has never happened to me before. <laughs> I had no idea why I assumed I was the caterer. Not that there's anything wrong with being the caterer, but he absolutely assumed that I was the caterer. Oh. Um, but the second thing that happened, and that was... Um, that was... The Prime Minister gave a oration that was a kind of wide-ranging oration about stress on the cities and lack of investment in infrastructure. And then he landed that policy about which they've been talking about, which is the idea that they're going to have a bottom-down rather than top-down methodology to decide how many people come here, which weirdly arrives at exactly the same number <laughs> that has been coming here for some time. But the thing that was remarkable that nobody noted was that at the end of all this discussion and, you know, subtle and not subtle discussions that, you know, verged on anxiety about immigration that's many, in many ways race-based... They gave some um, prizes at the end of it, Bradfield prizes, and the woman that won the prize 
at, um, was a young woman um, at Sydney University, architecture student, who'd come from India, but only been in this country for two years, and her winning prize was taking some of the strategies that she'd found in Delhi to reduce congestion, create social cohesion, and she talked with such, um, so articulately and so passionately about wanting to bring her experience in India with solving the congestion problems in this country. And I just thought, you've all, you've all, you've all cannot see that actually the solution to the problems you wring your hands about and worry about is in bringing people like this young woman here. I knew there was something wrong because her and her parents were the only people who weren't white in that room. It's, <laughs> I knew there was like, why are they? <laughs> I'm surprised that the man didn't come up and say, look, can you take my glass? <laughs> yes, yeah. Can you just give the food to the yeah, caterer? I mean, so that's, was, it, so yeah. we have a blind spot about immigration. We yeah. think it's about being smaller and we lack the intelligence about arguing for what a bigger but still cohesive and still dynamic Australia with all the things that we love about what it is to be Australian exists. The solutions are sometimes right in front of us. So I did, did want to say, I didn't end up saying it, but just like, well, you know, is, was that woman and her family, are they the very kinds of people who may, you know, be excluded from coming into Australia in the future because we worry about congestion? She was bringing a solution yeah. that won her a prize and has made her, you know, a top architecture student at the University of Sydney. Now, she looks around and sees that Australia isn't a place where she's welcome at the upper echelons of business or policy making or politics. She will take her great ideas and her PhD and she will go somewhere else and we will lose her. Rebecca, um, I wish you would name and shame uh, the <laughs> bloke who... I am a good caterer. You know I'm actually uh, good at flower arranging. Well, I, I, I know, I that. know. But it's never, ever happened to me before. It was oh. when Miranda Devine just stared at me. She was we, thinking, we, look, what we are have, we going to We say? have to workshop this. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Um, but look, I, I think you've, you've ended on a lovely note there. Um, the point is, the country is changing. And that has been uh, the, the way for, for some time. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, as you're talking about this young woman bringing the solutions from, from India to here. Uh, right now, there's a young Sri Lankan-born Australian teacher in Dubai, Yasadai, I can't, it's an awful, I can't think of her last name. Um, she is one of uh, top, the, the, the global top 10 teachers competing for kind of the number one in Dubai right now. I'm interviewing her next week on my podcast, yeah. Talking Teaching. Yeah. But anyway, but there you go. And she teaches, where does she? Teaches at Rudy Hill, one of the most disadvantaged schools in Western Sydney. She is wowing them. So again, just another yeah. example of that. I mean, where the country is actually yeah. racing beyond. Yeah. Canberra. Yeah. It's up to Canberra to catch up. Look, I recommend Rebecca's very thoughtful and very interesting essay to you. She's going to stay and she's going to um, sign yeah. copies. Would you please thank her for her thank time you. tonight? <laughs>